0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, um, November the 23rd, 2022, uh, day before Thanksgiving. Some people might say we don't have a lot to be thankful for. We live in an increasingly inegalitarian, aristocratic society. So many shows on this over the years. Still probably the best is with the UC Berkeley economist Gabriel Zuckman, one of the younger versions of uh, Thomas Piketty who warned us about this inequality in his latest book, The Triumph of Injustice. What does this mean in terms of thinking about the wealthy in particular? Uh, One of our guests, Uh, Earlier this year, Jeff Rosenthal suggested only rich people can afford to think big and chase their dreams and build community. He has a new book out, Make No Small Plans. Only wealthy people, perhaps, uh, can afford to do that, to avoid making small plans. Although some people seem to think that wealthy people aren't really that different from everybody else. Um, Jamie Weiner was on the show recently. He has a new book out, The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World, suggesting that the kids of the wealthy struggle as much for identity and legitimacy as the rest of us. Um, My guest today, I think, might be in the Winer camp. Uh, She has a new book out, came out yesterday, The Myth of the Silver Spoon quite a provocative title. Uh, Kristen Keffler is uh, based in Boulder, Colorado, and she's joining us today. Kristen, happy Thanksgiving for tomorrow.
1: Thank you, Andrew. I'm excited to be here. Happy, happy Thanksgiving to you too.
0: Thank you so much. So the myth of the silver spoon, a very provocative title, uh, Kristen. What do you mean by that? Are you Are suggesting that uh, the silver food the, the silver not food. the silver spoon, <laughs> particularly in our age of inequality is mythical that if you're born of a wealthy family, you don't have any natural advantages.
1: Um, I, I am saying I am saying that there the myth of the silver spoon is that like if you're born into a wealthy family, you have it all made and that, that there are no problems. I would say I'm very much in the Jamie Wiener camp. Um, in terms of he is both a friend and colleague and, and in terms of, of shining a light on the fact that just because you're born into wealth doesn't mean that, that you have no problems. What, what I disagree with though that what, of what you just said is that, um, that, it, that you don't have any natural advantages. I think every single one of my rising gen clients would absolutely agree that they have significant advantages and, and, and that's actually one of the things that becomes a stumbling block their, their recognition of the advantages they have in combination with sort of the, the darkness in which their, cha- their their problems and challenges are held. Like, nobody wants to talk about the problems of a rich kid, right? And, and yet there are common tripwires and, and common kinds of psychological clutter that, that many rising gen experience. And so it's both because they know they have privilege and so many advantages. And because we don't have open and honest conversations about money and wealth in our culture, that I think we, we end up losing a lot of their skill and talent and their social networks and the, the financial impact that, that when they're self-actualized, that they can, they can provide us. And so the myth is really about this idea that just because you're born with, with financial advantage doesn't mean that the path is entirely paved.
0: You are, your day job is as a um, a family wealth consultant. That's one way of putting it almost euphemistically. Have you written this book for your clients, for your wealthy clients and their children? Or are you writing it for the rest of us or both?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. When I, I will say that when I first started writing this book, my intention was really to try to create something that would be helpful to the rising gen in affluent uh, and enterprising families, because I've worked with so many of them that just get so stuck. And yet they have access to social networks and financial capital that if they were unstuck, the th- there would be a significant ripple impact through communities. And so I wrote this originally with them in mind and their parents and their trusted advisors. But one of the things I realized in the process of writing it was that really the, the umbrella that is that over that that sort of over all of this is that this idea that culturally we have a pretty um, tangly relationship with money and with wealth. And I think part of the, the, um, the real challenges that we experience, I don't don't think anybody would agree that, or anybody would think that an increasing wealth gap is good for a culture or a society. And and I don't either. And I think that the fact that we have such a tangled relationship with money and with wealth and so much projection and so so often allow money to be a stand-in or a proxy for other human needs that and human desires that we're trying to have fulfilled, it's it, one of the things I realized in the process of writing the book was that really this is a, a call to awareness for all of us, like an, a significant wealth gap doesn't help us. And the more we can have open, honest conversations and the more that we can actually have the people who have access to resources being awake and alive and engaged, the more that those resources can be deployed in ways that, um, that I think will be meaningful to communities
0: and some people might watch this and say, well, for the wealthy, if they're so worried about all this, they could just give their money away. I mean, some of them have promised to do that, at least at the end of their lives. Andrew Carnegie, of course, uh, pioneered this, Jeff Bezos, um, uh, Bill Gates. I mean, should we be concerned? Why don't these people just, if if, if it's causing so many problems, and if it's so ugly and we're not really able for one reason or another to confront it, just give the money back, give it, pay it in tax, give it to the homeless down the street. I live in San Francisco, uh, a a, a city of enormous uh, divisions between the wealthy and the homeless. So if we, and then I'm part of the wealthy, we should all probably just go out and give the money away. Shouldn't we?
1: Yeah. It's a, like it, it would probably Be a really great move and the problem with with just making that as the 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 mandate or the the invitation is that again it goes back to this idea that we really have a very unconscious and entangled relationship with wealth and money right so if everybody if if every person who had wealth had a really clean and conscious and healthy relationship with the wealth they had created they probably would give a lot more back because really ultimately money and by extension it's the aggregation of money which is wealth is just a tool and but the the challenge is that we because we have such a a a relationship with it that is not healthy and not sort of really conscious and recognizing that it is just a tool then we we do the thing that we tend to do which is like if i can have some and it's good more is better like i i'm gonna i'm gonna get as big a pile as i can because it gives me status and security and whatever i I take your point
0: although it's only the wealthy or the representatives of the wealthy or the apologists for the wealthy who describe wealth as a tool we had a, a show recently with the money thinker consultant philosopher ken honda He's um, a Japanese, a very popular Japanese mm-hmm. writer. He has a new book out called Happy Money. And he, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work, but he, and, and, and then I think this is interesting in the context of our conversation. He presents the dilemma of money, the same thing you and I are talking about in the context of Zen philosophy. Is the problem in America not so much inequality, although that's obviously an enormous problem, but shall we say the Protestant ethic associated with wealth—the mm-hmm. idea that, at least in its foundations, wealth was seen as a reflection of goodness, of moral virtue—right.
1: Nope. Oh, are you there?
0: Yeah. No. I'm. That was a oh, question.
1: Oh, sorry. I, I I thought that you. I, I seem to have.
0: Look- uh, I, I, I you look shocked. No, are you sorry. are you believer in 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 Weber's theory of the Protestant ethic and the idea of wealth as the the, the Protestant version of salvation, which is why Got people it. worked so hard and valued wealth so much because it had these metaphysical properties?
1: Right. I'm okay. I understand the question. I thought you were still leading up to the question. Um, no, I, I'm not a, I, I believe that that is part of the fabric of how we relate to money. I'm not a believer in the the premise itself, but I believe that that's, that is actually a huge reason that we have the, the relationship that we do with money. Um, and, you know, it's sort of woven into our fabric and, and culturally we're, we're not the only ones who have a tangly relationship with money, but we, we definitely, in America, we do have uh, a sort of long ties or long, yeah, a long history of um, kind of a, a relationship with money where it's not always what it is, right? Like it, at its heart, it's a tool. And and for a long time, we've done this dance with, you know, is it virtuous to have money or is it virtuous to not have money? does it Does it illustrate goodness? to have more, or is it better to actually be poor? Like these are things that like we, we create this binary um, narrative around money and people end up being in one camp or the other. And that's extended to modern day.
0: Yeah, it's, it's our dirty laundry. Uh, We had a philosopher of sex, of course, Freud who revealed everything was about sex. I guess Marx in his own way was the philosopher of of money. Our, Our culture, our broad popular culture, it seems to me, Kristen, celebrates fame and wealth in an odd way. We have lots of shows, lots of television shows and online shows about the lives of the rich and famous. But they're not very accurate, are they? I mean, you, 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 you may not be rich and famous yourself, but they're your clients and you deal with them on a daily basis. Yeah. How, how much of our culture and, and, and its coverage of wealth and of fame... Reflects truth, or is it just the the Hollywood version of what it's like to be rich and famous?
1: I I think that the how much of our our popular culture that it that represents what is what it's like to be rich. I think it's very little, at least with the clients I work with, right? And I'm not working with like celebutants or people who are really trying to um, project the image of status in a way to actually generate more wealth. Like I, that's not the typical kind of client I have. The typical kind of client I have is one that where generally it's like someone, a wealth creating, um, couple, a person, you know, often a wealth creating person and, and his or her partner had a, a really great idea and a strong work ethic and built something that they were able to, to create that um, that ultimately had enough value that they could either really generate income from it or sell it and generate some liquidity. And though that that kind of person is really at their heart very much like a just hardworking and committed to to doing something pretty awesome, some big idea of their own. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't work with families that have you know, sort of the things that from the outside we think would be amazing, like, right, like private planes and, and really beautiful homes and second homes. Um, But at the heart, at least my clients are, they're just people. And they, they just, they, in general, they want to find a way to, to wake up and find meaning in their lives, to contribute to their communities. Um, And they may be a little um, sort of taken with the ability to do the things that they're able to do but in general, the people I work with are, also have two feet on the ground and, and feel really lucky for what they have.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be, again, a lot of people scratching their heads a little bit on the idea of family wealth being a, a, a burden. But if, if we buy your idea, is it mostly a burden on them, on the people who, the first generation people who made their money or on their descendants, their children and their grandchildren?
1: say that it. I, I don't experience, often wealth creators find it to be a burden. Um, I think they find it to be more complex to actually navigate that territory than they thought it was going to be. There's more things to have to deal with than they thought they might have to deal with, more emotional and psychological consequences to family members and to their own lives. But I, I would say, um, I would even reframe it from being a burden to the, to the next generation that, because most... It, I've actually never worked with a, a rising generation family member who said that wealth was a burden. What they experience it as is a more convoluted path than what it appears from the outside that they, they feel like there is ultimately, there's more psychological tripwires than, um, than probably any one of their friends or somebody else from, you know, outside their circle, whatever expect that they would have things like, Feeling feeling isolated because they're not really um, they're not really they don't have a good litmus test for what an authentic friend is like. Is this person hanging out with me because they just genuinely like me for me, or because I have you know the funnest house and the and the coolest things to do? And and not being able to discern that is something. I mean, being able to discern that is a skill we build over time. And being in a buffered place, then wealth creates a buffer
0: and i assume that results in a in a in a form of self segregation if you're only if you're wealthy if you're the kids of wealthy families and you don't trust whether or not people really like you because of your money then you just make friends with other kids of wealthy families and you have less to worry about at least on that front oh, so in a way that- it only compounds if not the inequalities, the the class nature of American society. And that's the irony, isn't it, Kristen? And that's the the great paradox of America. On the one hand, it's a deeply aristocratic society of enormous inequality. Uh, It was founded on the idea of democracy and the reverse has taken place. And yet the traditional accoutrements of aristocracy from dress and title... um, can't be embraced so these people can't walk around wearing the dress of the aristocracy if anything they have to hide it
1: right yeah i i think you're i think you're right in that it's a you know it's sort of a an interesting paradox of of the role you know in a, in our culture wealth really does create the you know it has cre- the the aristocracy it's it's the it's the thing that you know, when you're when you're part of the when you're part of the masses, it's what you might be looking to to say, like, I want to be like that. And yet we also have we have projections of what, you know, sort of the pining for what we think it would be like if we were wealthy. But also we we hold a lot of judgment around those who have wealth and particularly those who have inherited wealth. Um, so, again, it's like that place that becomes a that that makes it difficult for us, I think, to have, to have honest conversations about what wealth actually is and what it isn't and what it can do.
0: And of course, the system itself benefits the wealthy, especially college. Uh, my daughter's at a fancy liberal arts school on the East Coast. And my sense is that she and her friends discriminate between uh, the kids who get in because they're academically talented but versus those who get in because their parents gave money and their parents went to this college. So again, we have the, the architecture, the infrastructure of aristocracy, but no one's really willing to acknowledge it.
1: Right. Right. I, I think you're, I think you're spot on Andrew. It's a, it's, there are so many shadowy places where, where we send, you know, two different kinds of messages about, wealth being good and wealth being bad and people who have wealth being being good and desirable and those who have it being sort of bad and like why did they get that advantage and just like you described with with your daughter and her friends at school like we we want to we want to celebrate those who have gotten to where they've gotten on merit right and as we should and and yet there are there's so much um, There's really so much that even just having some economic advantage gives you more leg up that that like the entanglement between merit and privilege, I think are like that's another place where they're not. Those are not two cleanly separate um, ideas or two cleanly separate pathways.
0: Is the struggle when you when when these people come to you, is the struggle. uh, Leading what you call the impactful life or convincing others that you're Mm. leading an impactful life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that it, that's an interesting question. I'm trying, like, I think that at the heart of it, when, when clients, when um, rising gen come to me and become clients, what they're really seeking is, is to find meaning and impact and so to actually lead an impactful life. But I think that it takes a little while to get there. There's like layers of other identity clutter that's on top of that. Um, One of the things I often hear from clients is they will say, you know, I I sit on, you know, pick, pick something. I sit on the board of my family's foundation. And so I can say that I'm a trustee. Of a, of a foundation, which sounds like an impressive thing, but at the heart of it, like they know that, that, you know, they meet four times a year and that it's not a quote unquote, real job. And so there's this sense of like what, like maybe I can, when someone asks me, what do you do for a living? Then they can say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a trustee for a foundation and they can make it sound like something important and yet inside they know that, that 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 in that moment they are probably doing something important but that that doesn't take up all their time and that they're not may not really be having the kind of impact that they want to have and so there's also this confusion between like wanting to genuinely wanting to to feel like their life matters like what they're doing has meaning and impact and um, and being kind of in getting tangled up in just this idea that, like, well, what do others think about what I do? And if I don't have to have a real job uh, you know, a go out and get paid paid for my work job, do I, should I be working? And, like, there's just, like, there's layer of layer. what do you
0: tell them? I mean, you're a professional consultant. You call yourself a family wealth consultant, which is a euphemism, I think, mean, other words, we could use for it. Um, my, my amateur response would be go out and get a real job become a doctor become a social worker go go overseas and 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 help uh development stuff address environmental issues there's so many things you can do you don't have to work for your family trust
1: for sure i my my advice is that that working is important working doesn't have to be defined the way we traditionally define it um and i can speak to that in a minute but i think that at the heart of it, the, this idea that removing the financial need to work in any way removes the human need to work, like even if you don't have to work to earn money, to pay your mortgage, to pay your water bill, that that doesn't remove the need that we as humans are wired for work. We're wired to to see how what when we put something out in the world, there's a there's a response back from it right it's from like the earliest age when we're sitting when we're in a crib and you start dropping toys out of out of a crib and you want to see like how much noise does it make who comes running when i do something what's the response and so there's there's this very deeply wired part of us that that has a need to work the the real opportunity for the conversation i think with, with the rising gen I work with isn't just to say, well, then go get a job. But it's to figure out like, how is it that given that you have been given so much, you know, usually great education, the ability to not worry about where food's coming from or where you're going to live, like many of those, all of those worries, those sort of day-to-day worries that many people struggle with, those are taken off their plate. So, then it's really about asking the question of how do you want to go use the skill and talent and privilege and power you've been given and what does meaning look like and those are big questions i mean maybe you and i at the ages we are today could really dive into those questions in a in a more productive way but like imagine you at 22 or you know i think me at 21 22 23 and And trying to think about like, well, what does, what does a purposeful life mean to me? What does, uh, you know, what is, what is my passion? Like those are, those questions are not really questions to be answered in your twenties. Your twenties are really about building identity capital, going out and testing and trying lots of things and figuring out what really works and doesn't work for you. And where the trap is, is that often rising gen end up coming into having some level of access to wealth or to, to the resources they have at an age when they're not yet really ready to go like plug into to passion. Yeah, and I
0: mean, uh, Kristen, maybe one of the problems is these choice of language, rising gen, why not just call them ri- young rich people?
1: Right, that's a, because I think, um, what does that
0: even mean, rising gen?
1: the rising so the rising gen is really it's a it's a way of naming you so the the term we used to use is next gen right we used to say oh that's the next generation in that family which really only gave them identity in relationship to the wealth creator and their family right so i'm the next generation i am i'm a g2 or a g3 or which by G4. definition
0: is already putting and I and 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 there's obviously a pun here, chips on their shoulder. Right. Most of us can't afford chips on our shoulder, but they're <laughs> lucky or unlucky enough to have chips on their shoulder.
1: For sure, for sure. It's, and, and it's already saying like- I mean, do great. they hate, do you
0: find Kristen? Uh, my sense is that there's not enough generational rebellion these days, that the kids these days love their parents and their parents' culture, which is very unhealthy and ugly. Do you find that the, what you call the rising gender, they hate their parents? I hope they do. They've ruined <laughs> their lives, right? Made them feel yeah, bad. I, Given them too I, much money. I
1: don't find that they hate their parents. I find that like most people, they're they're just trying to find a way of belonging in their family, right? Like
0: They're lost. They- they're lost. It's a lost generation. What about, we, we've done a number of shows, Kristen, on. Speaking of being lost, how young men in particular in our culture in the early 21st century are lost, given the changes in our economics and cultural assumptions. Are you seeing big differences between, and I use your term, rising gen men and rising gen women?
1: Mm. Um, that's a great question. I hadn't actually segmented it by gender in my own thinking. I... I'm not sure I would say I do see really big differences between them. I think that the challenges that that they face are consistent. Is there, maybe there might be some like more delayed launching with the men um,
0: than the women. Until they're about 50, they still live at home.
1: Right, right. exactly. But, but, you know, that's that doesn't even necessarily have to be an economic thing. That might just be a male thing.
0: Yeah. And in the old days, of course, in the traditional aristocracy, the value of women was was marriage. Um, what about the issue of, of marriage, particularly in the context of sharing wealth? I mean, that's how you share wealth. Uh, are you finding that these kids are intermarrying with each other or are they marrying, so to speak, out?
1: I, I find that um, that the relationship clutter that that these these young adults have is pretty deep and that often they they tell me it would be easier if they could just marry someone who was maybe in a similar economic demographic but the truth is it's not because the uh, the, that really understanding what this wealth is and isn't to to a to a rising gen is what is more important to helping them understand how to be in relationship and i would say that that It is one of the things that is probably most difficult is um, for most of them is, is finding partners that they feel they can really trust and who they feel really love them for who they are and where they can um, navigate the relationship that they now jointly have with wealth together when, you know, as you know, where we started this conversation, where culturally, we don't have good language for how to talk about money and wealth. We don't have good role models for for having good conversations about money and wealth. So to think that a young couple would come together and be able to, to successfully, one, learn how to partner and communicate and do the things that couples just have to learn how to do anyway, and then add this magnifying glass of wealth on top of it and think that they could do that easily and well is, um, it's faulty thinking, right? It's, it's, wealth, it doesn't have to be the thing that takes a couple out at the knees, but it really, truly is a magnifying glass. If there's any, whatever dynamics may already be going on in a relationship, wealth will only expand them.
0: Can you find my son or daughter a rich partner? Maybe Maybe. we need social networks for rich people, which everyone would want to belong. Finally, um, Kristen, in all seriousness, I mean, as you can imagine, and you're being very good natured about this it is somewhat hard to feel sorry for these people but i guess we should everyone else has complaints why not wealthy people um you suggest that they need to claim their flame i mean basically is your argument that everyone has something in them a flame which may need to be ignited in some way or other but all people have value all people have potential everyone has a path in them wealthy or poor and that the challenge for your rising gen is finding that. Is that the core message in the book and in your work?
1: Yeah, it is. And I I will, I, I have to correct one thing that you said, Andrew, because I, I, anyone in my rising gen would act totally cringe at the idea that anyone would feel sorry for them. They're not asking for a cry of sympathy. Um, so, so we can, we can put that aside. There's, this isn't about feel sorry for, for the rich kid. This, but this really, the, at, at the, the core message for the book is, is that there's this, every single one of us has something magnificent in us. And for various reasons, we may- Even
0: Donald Trump.
1: Who, you want me to opine political? I'm not not uh, sure- He's the sign of wealth.
0: We made even more wealth. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Trump. Yeah, I don't either. (laughs) Um,
1: I do think that, you know, when, when the I do think everybody has something brilliant in them to bring forward, and how that gets channeled and and the impact that it has um, is really up to each one of us to to be on the path of self actualization, to decide like I'm going to own my my own life, I'm going to take radical responsibility for creating what I what I want and need to create, and everybody has their own psychological and emotional clutter. And and this, this is really just about naming the specific kind of psychological and emotional clutter that, um, that those who have been born into great privilege have, and to acknowledge like, yeah, there, if we could have some legitimate discourse about that, about the idea that, that money doesn't solve everything, it doesn't make everything easy. And in fact, it makes certain things harder. And the more that we could actually have discourse about that, the more I think that, those who have access to wealth and who have access to, to social networks and to the ability to truly have impact because they have capital, the more we could actually solve a lot of problems that we have been very entrenched and stuck with um, and where governmental agencies and, and even well-meaning nonprofits don't have the ability to move as fast as privately held capital can move.
0: Well, there's another discussion here. My, my solution would be just to, if not to eat the rich, certainly tax them radically. If they all paid 98% on their wealth, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. But you seem very sympathetic uh, as a family wealth consultant. So when I make my fortune, Kristen, I'm going to come to you as a consultant. Meanwhile, we can all read your myth of the silver spoon, an interesting book, an interesting take. Someone who has access to the wealthy navigating family wealth and creating an impactful life. Congratulations um, uh, on on the book. It's just out, uh, Kristen. And and finally, um, is there a big difference between US and and European wealth on this? I've read some pieces about young Europeans simply giving away their money. We began with that issue. Um, I'm sure there are some young Americans as well, but do do you see Europeans pioneering this in terms of the young wealthy of Europe simply just Acknowledging this is a huge problem and just quite literally giving their money away.
1: Yeah, you know what? I I um my experience set is more US centric. So I can speak more from experience in terms of what I see um in our in the US culture, but I would say that that Europe in general has um often shows Europeans show a different relationship with wealth because there's such a longer history of of dynastic wealth like the the kind of wealth that is in europe is like so many gener often so many generations older than what we have in the u.s and it's held in a different way right The um not that there's not incredible entrepreneurs in europe but the culturally speaking they're like the u.s has really sort of Held up the entrepreneur as as almighty, and and Europeans have honored a lot more of tradition and sort of deep culture around the aristocracy, and I think that um, that ultimately probably has yielded a different kind of relationship to wealth, um, and and I would submit maybe a healthier one than than we tend to have here in the U.S.